Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a a persecutor, and an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. Well, we're starting, I say we're starting, I guess technically we started a couple weeks ago this new series on the church and just in the nature of the church. And I thought there are a few places in the Bible better to go to understand the church and our role in the world than honestly 1 Timothy, partly because this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to uh, his protege, Timothy. Timothy had traveled with Paul around and ministered with him in multiple places. Um, and they get to Ephesus, and Paul planted a church in Ephesus. And uh, Timothy's about to go with Paul. And Paul says, no, Timothy, stay here in Ephesus. They need you. Uh, and Timothy becomes the leader of the church in Ephesus. Now, in the New Testament, you got to understand, like, churches weren't like they are today, right? Like, it's not like one building where everybody gathers. It's not a church of hundreds and hundreds of hundreds. When Timothy is the head of the church in Ephesus, it means he's the guy that all these local little homeowners and house church pastors go to for leadership. He is the bishop over the churches in Ephesus. And these are lots of little house churches spread all over the place. And so there's not, like, a centralized one church body where everybody comes together. And so Paul recognizes this growing church in Ephesus is going to need some good, solid leadership. And he says, Timothy, I want you to stay behind and lead the church in Ephesus and lead them through all the difficulties that they're going to face. And that's where we pick up. That's why we're investigating this book of 1 Timothy, because Paul's writing to Timothy and he's basically telling Timothy, here's what the church needs to believe and here's how it needs to behave And so as a church, even as people who aren't necessarily pastors or leaders in the church or hold official positions, it is good for us to know what the Apostle Paul has told Timothy the church needs to be in order for us to understand what the church ought to be, how we believe, what we do, how we treat one another, how we act. And so that's why we're turning to 1 Timothy. That's where we are. So today's text really covers the whole of the first chapter. The first chapter is kind of an introduction. It begins with this greeting, and then it ends with that uh, doxology. Well, the portion we read ends with that doxology. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we have a couple of little instructions to Timothy there. And So we're going to cover this whole first chapter. And so when we go to the ancient world, when we go to the church, we 
find that like even the first 20, 30 years, there are already divisions happening in the church. I can't imagine that we would understand what it's like to have a divided church. I mean, to understand what divisions are in society. Like, we don't know what that is, right? Today in the church, I think the biggest divide is probably between those who would say the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is entirely personal and individual, and it's all about my transformation and my sin and me becoming a better person. And those who would say, as long as you're committed to the right ethics and the right social programs and the right issues of justice, your personal morality doesn't matter as much because the gospel is mostly about social change. And we've got these two factions in the church. The far right wing that says it's all individual, it's all personal, and if we could just get every individual saved, society would be better and we don't have to worry about social stuff. And the others that say, you know what? It's all about how you love people. And loving people means being committed to this issue and that issue and this solution and that solution and these issues of justice. And the church divides itself between its more progressive wing and its more conservative wing. And the problem is that they're both false teaching. Those are both wrong. Well, they both got a little bit right in them. But they both go way too far. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is about personal transformation. It's about personal forgiveness of sin. It's about personally becoming like Jesus. And it is about seeing his purposes done in the world and his justice brought and his kingdom to bear on the society around us. It is social and it is individual. It is personal and it is corporate. It is all of those things. And so we dare not, as a church, lean too hard one way or the other we got to hold them both. And that's the issue of our day. That's, that's what it means for us to be faithful to Jesus in our day, to stand in between the division and say, no, 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 no. We are pursuing social justice and personal righteousness. Personal holiness matters just as much as caring for the oppressed, and caring for the oppressed matters just as much as personal holiness. Both of those things together. Neither one to the exclusion of the other. That's what faithfulness means for us. In Timothy's day, it wasn't too different. In Timothy's day, there were all kinds of people in the church, people from within his church in Ephesus, who were coming up with all kinds of different ways of following Jesus. They were getting obsessed with all kinds of stuff that Jesus never talked about, with celebrating certain seasons and days and times and in certain ways, and they were obsessed with timelines. Anybody obsessed with timelines? Say, anybody read an End Times book recently? They're obsessed with timelines. They want to tell you down to the minute, everything's going to happen before Jesus comes. Right? We talked about that a year ago. Right? Don't read those books. Okay? In fact, right here at the beginning of Timothy, Paul addresses them and says, look, those people who are obsessed with timelines, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. He says that exactly. He says they don't know what they're talking about, and they think they do. Back in Timothy's day, there were all kinds of divisions within the church, brought about by all kinds of different teaching. And a lot of time, what happens is you get false teachers that rise up within the church. Most of them aren't malicious. This is what you've got to understand, because we live in a world that says, as long as you're sincere, it's good, and that's not true. Because you can be sincere about a lot of lies. And there are a lot of people out there that are sincere about a lot of lies. False teaching in the church almost always happens out of sincerity. 
People come in and they're like, they read the Bible a certain way or they understand Jesus a certain way or they look around at that world and they're like, you know, I really want to make this work here. And so they begin with a small departure. And in their sincerity and in their care and in their desire to make something better, they kind of go further and further and further afield until they become false teachers. And Paul is warning Timothy here in chapter 1 of this letter against false teaching. He's saying, keep your doctrine pure. Keep your doctrine good. Teach the truth and stand opposed to the false teachers. And unlike our day where we, are, where we kind of dance around and we don't want to name names and we don't want to call out certain things because we don't want to offend anybody, Paul himself here at the end of chapter 1 calls names. He calls it out. He says, don't follow Hymenaeus and Alexander. I've already given them up. I've excommunicated them. I've put them out of the church so that they can learn their lesson. And so Paul wants us to know, we need to stand firm on truth as the church. We must stand firm on the truth of the gospel, on the truth of the scriptures. We cannot depart from it. And when we begin to see ourselves sliding even a little bit away, we had better course correct. This is why we need the church. This is why we need one another. We have to have each other to be able to point those things out because I don't know necessarily when I've taken that little step off the path. In my sincerity and in my desire to care and in my desire to love and and in all of my good intentions... I nevertheless step off the path of right teaching. I step off the path of orthodoxy. I need you, I need the church to say, well, wait a minute. I think you might be heading in the wrong direction. You're not there yet, but if you keep following this way, I'm not sure you're going to end up with Jesus. I think you're going to go off the path. We need one another to correct ourselves because we can't see our own blind spots. We need the church to correct us, to walk with us, to help us to stay in the lane of truth. That is a valuable function of the church and of pastors and of leaders and of brothers and sisters who just know the word, know the scripture. I have been discipled and taught most deeply by people who never held an official position within the church but walked with Jesus for decade upon decade upon decade. We need those older saints who have been with Jesus for their entire lives and who know him far more deeply than we do. We admire the wrong people when we admire young teachers. Now, I'm not quite 40 yet, so I realize I'm on the young end of that. But I have mentors and pastors and people who I look to who disciple me. We admire the wrong people when we uphold youth as the highest ideal, just like the rest of our culture, and we forget that the older saints who have been walking with Jesus forever without a theology degree and yet know Jesus and his Holy Spirit better than we do now are absolutely essential to our faith. We need to be discipled and led by those who are further along the path than we are in order to be able to rightly point us back to Jesus and to his truth. 
That's what Paul does for Timothy. That's who Paul was for Timothy. That's who Paul is calling Timothy to be for the community. Because Paul realizes that because of Timothy's way he was raised, because he's been following Paul, because he's been learning with him, Timothy's further down this road than even some of the older people who are coming to Jesus. And so Paul is putting Timothy here in this city of Ephesus to lead these people because he's more mature. That's why Paul will say later, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Because Jesus is mature in Christ. And that's what counts, is maturity in Christ. And so, Paul is calling Timothy, make sure that these little house leaders, that these little house church leaders are staying on the right path. That they're teaching truth. That they're not departing from it. Now, we got plenty of voices in the church today who are calling for truth. we got plenty of voices. We call them heresy hunters. People who are out there just looking for every tiny little thing that they disagree with. Not that is wrong, not that is unorthodox, not that is off the path of Jesus, but that's just a little different from their personal theology. So we got all kinds of heresy hunters out in the church right now who are calling out all kinds of things. Calling out lyrics in songs. Songs that are actually really good. Worship songs that we sing. And yet there might be one word in there that this doesn't jive with this person's theology. And so they'll yell about it from mountaintops. Don't sing Bethel music anymore. Don't sing Hillsong music anymore. These are terrible. No, no whatever. What Paul is calling us to is not heresy hunting. It's not, it's not taking a magnifying glass or a microscope to everybody's theology and, and lining it up against yours and pointing out all the ways that you differ or that they're wrong. What Paul is calling us to is a truth, a, a mindset, a commitment to truth that keeps us focused on Jesus for the sake of love. And that's where we get it wrong too often. That's where the heresy hunters get it wrong. That's where we get it wrong sometimes when we're calling one another out. Is we're not doing it in love. We're doing it to make ourselves feel better. We're doing it to make ourselves feel superior. Feel like we've got the right theology. We've got the right thing. We've got the right line on Jesus and you don't. And I've just got to point that out. But when we do it in love, it's a different tone. Paul says this explicitly in Verse 5, after he's told Timothy, call out the false teacher, stay true to Jesus. In verse 5, Paul says, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the goal. That's why we stay true to Jesus. That's why we pursue good doctrine. That's why we live holy lives. That's why we try to be like Jesus. Because the goal is love. The love of God poured out through me. The love of God poured out through our community. Now what's the connection then between good doctrine and love? Because a lot of the church doesn't see this. A lot of people will, will argue with you, why do I really need doctrine when I've got Jesus? Why do I really need doctrine? All I've got to do is love people well. That's what I'm supposed to do, right? All I've got to do is love. Why do I need to know doctrine? Why do I need to know the truths of the faith? Why are these important? And Paul here in the first chapter of Timothy makes it very clear that it is your good doctrine that drives your love. It is your good doctrine that drives your joy. It's your good doctrine that drives your community. It's the good doctrine that draws you together. It's knowing the truth about God. A lot of us think that doctrine and, and that uh, uh, doctrine, I guess, sorry, 
doctrine and the teachings of the church, those are for those people. Those are for the theologians. Those are for the pastors. Those are for the high-minded people. They're for the seminarians. They're for the people who study this stuff. They're not for the lay person. The lay person doesn't need to know this. And yet Paul's driving Timothy to teach good doctrine, to make sure his people know good doctrine because that's the source of their love. That's the source of their commitment to one another, their commitment to Christ. Because at the end of the day, all our doctrine is, is knowing God. All our doctrine is, is the things that we know about God. The things we know about Jesus. They're just the things that throughout the history of the church and the years of the church, followers of Jesus have put down and said, this is what we can know. And because we know this, we love our God. And because we know this, we know that he knows us. It's because we know our doctrine that we can follow our God faithfully. It's just knowing God. It's knowing about him. It's knowing who he is. It's like if you go to marry somebody, yeah, that, that show Love is Blind is really big right now, right? All kinds of people are into this show Love is Blind. I've not watched a single episode. I have zero interest in this thing. I have zero interest in dating shows or reality shows in general. But I've heard a lot of people talking about Love is Blind, and I've kind of followed along with some of the storylines, right? These people who, they can't see each other, and so they get to know each other through these little pods, and then they decide who they're going to marry without ever having seen the person, right? You don't see the person until you're ready to marry them. And, and it's just, I get the idea. Like, it's, it's a good idea, okay? Like, your physical attraction doesn't matter. And then I read a story recently, just yesterday, about one of the couples that broke up at the altar because the man wasn't physically attracted to the woman. <laughs> Hold up! Wait a minute! Right? In all their time in the pods... And in all the subsequent time they did get to spend after, right before the wedding, in whatever time they spent together, they didn't know the doctrine of one another. They didn't know each other. You can say, we'll put you in these pods and you'll get to know each other based not on your physical appearance, but on your personality. But we're more than just the things we say, right? You don't know a person until you've seen them in different circumstances, in different situations. You don't really know a person until you've walked with them through an airplane with crying babies, right? You, you don't know a person until you've had dinner at a restaurant and that loud family sits next to you. You don't know them until you have been in the most annoying situations in the world with them. You don't know people until you've spent time with them. And if you're going to marry somebody, you want to know everything you can about them. You want to see them in all those situations. You want to know the doctrine of that person. When we love someone, we want to know the doctrine about them. We want to know the facts about them. We want to know who they are. We want to see them in all situations. And doctrine of God, the doctrine of God is just who God is in every circumstance of the world. That's what the scripture shows us. That's what it reveals to us. That's what our doctrine puts out there for us is who is this God that we love? And if we love him, don't we want to know him? If we love our God, don't we want to know God in every circumstance, in every situation? Don't we want to know that our God is the God who will pick up and comfort the crying baby rather than just cry and get upset in the, in the plane seat? Don't we want to know that God is not the one who's going to complain about the loud family next to him, but going to pull his, pull his uh, table right up next to him and join him? Don't we want to know that our God is the God who loves and who cares and who joins in the party? 
You want to know that about God, right? That's in the doctrine of God. That's the teaching of God. That's why we stick close to right teaching about God, so that we can know him and know him deeply. And so that's why Paul calls Timothy here to pursue truth, but pursue truth for the sake of love. To call people out, but to call people out for the sake of love. And just in case there's a temptation here to take this instruction and then get all high-minded and heavy-handed and start slapping people around with a Bible, Paul goes into his own story. See, this whole letter is going to be about protecting the truth of the gospel, protecting the truth of of right doctrine, and of helping the church to, to hold to the truth and to follow Christ. And Paul realizes that this could be used as a weapon to harm people. It could be used as a tool of oppression. You could use this to put people down and in their place and and let them know that you don't know as much as I do, therefore you're not as valuable as I am. Paul understands the risk of weaponizing the gospel and of weaponizing truth. And so Paul begins this letter with his own story. He wants to remind Timothy of his own story. And that's what Terry read for us. That's where I want to camp out for a minute. Paul says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. And here comes the kicker. Here's here's the part that counteracts the temptation to use the gospel as a weapon. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man, But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that doxology right at the end there, and I can't wait to get to it, but first we've got to step back. Paul says, I'm the worst. Let's just, let's just cut out all the other descriptors he uses. <clears throat> Paul just says, dude, I'm the worst. And remember, he's just been warning Timothy against false teaching and against false teachers and against the morally reprehensible. He, he's been warning Timothy against leading an immoral life, against allowing immorality in the church, against allowing false teaching, And just to make sure that Timothy understands the heart of Paul, Paul says, now hold up, before you go judging anybody, I'm the worst of them. Me. I, your mentor. I, the one who am leading you. I'm the one who put you in your position. I'm the worst of these people. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. And yet Jesus saw fit to pour out his grace on me. This is Paul saying, don't think that anybody is beyond the grace of God. Just because I'm warning you against these influences in the church does not mean that these people are beyond hope. Don't write them off. Hold on to hope for them because there was hope for me, says Paul. I'm the worst sinner there is. 
I persecuted the church of Jesus. I killed followers of Jesus. I persecuted Jesus' body. Remember when Jesus knocks Paul off his donkey when Paul's on his way to Damascus and Paul looked, Jesus looks to Paul and Paul's looking up into this light in the sky and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus feels the pain of all of his people. And Paul is now setting our sights on the fact that it is only the grace of God that saves us at all. It is only the grace of Christ that saves any of us. It's only the grace of our Lord Jesus that redeems any of us, and we are the worst. Church, I'm the worst. You're the worst. We've looked down on Jesus, rejected him, held ideas and beliefs and desires that are entirely contrary to what he wants for us. Every one of us is a blasphemer in our own right. Every one of us has turned our back on Christ. Every one of us is a deceiver. Every one of us looks out for number one above everybody else. Every one of us is born into sin, into rebellion, because we're born into a rebellious world. One of my favorite recent songs, one of the lines goes, everyone born is illegal when love is the law of the land. And I just feel like, In the kingdom of God, isn't that the truth, right? Like the kingdom of God, love is the law, the love of Christ, the grace of Christ is the law. And yet I am born in sin, opposed to the law of love. We are the worst. And we got to own that before we can own the grace that is ours. We got to own that we are blasphemers before we can own the love that is poured out to us in Jesus Christ. There's a pervasive lie in the world that says we're born good and that we're basically good and all we really need to do is point out the good that's in everybody and the world will be better. And if we could just educate ourselves and we could just own who we are, then the world would become a better place. The idea of life as an experiment in character development is, is absent from our popular culture. And yet, that's what the gospel calls us to. To recognize, I'm not good as I am. I'm not good as I was born. I'm not set on the right path from birth. I'm born a blasphemer. I'm born self-centered. I am born in sin. I'm born rebellious. And I live into it. And that's the temptation of my heart, to live into my rebellion against God. But Paul comes along and says, it's good you've grasped that. Now here's the grace of God for you. That God saw fit to come to earth as Jesus Christ to show us the way, to show us how to live, to redeem us from that sin, to take us from the worst to the most righteous. And that's why Paul centers everything on this 
statement. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I hope that becomes a prayer for you. I hope that becomes a mantra for every single one of us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. When that is my default in the morning, when I start there, I can't look down on anybody. When I start there, I can't think I'm better than anybody. When I start there, I can't weaponize the gospel. I can't weaponize the truth. I can't start beating people over the head with the gospel or with the Bible. I can't start judging and excluding people. When I start here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. I have no place in my heart for judgment anymore. I have no place in my heart to look down on anyone anymore. My posture then is one of grace because I've received grace. My posture can become one of love because of the love that I've received. My posture can be one of inclusion and acceptance because I realize I've been accepted and included. My posture can be one of standing opposed to exclusion and oppression because I was one who oppressed. Because I was one who turned my back on God. Because I was one who put others down. I can't look at the false teachers. I can't look at the, the sinners of the world. I can't look at anybody who lives differently than me and think that I'm any better off. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. Alexander, Hymenaeus, these, these men who had been teaching falsehoods in the church and needed to be disciplined. We can say to them, I love you. And I want you to be restored. Paul doesn't take a hard line on truth. He doesn't take a hard line on gospel because he's just a legalistic, moralistic jerk. He takes a hard line on the truth because he knows it's the only thing that will set us free. And he knows it's the only thing that will bring us acceptance into the kingdom of God. He takes a hard line on truth because it's the only path to love. This is the only path to forgiveness. It's the only path to transformation. He takes a hard line on the truth of Jesus because if we doesn't, then we're living in false hope. And so, I just want to... I was not well prepared today. I don't know where to land this plane except to say, <laughs> I, I would invite you to adopt that prayer as your own. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. And then build on that. Build up from there. I'm the worst of sinners. But through Christ, I am known, I'm loved, I'm accepted, I'm redeemed, I'm whole. I'm the worst of sinners. But through Jesus Christ, I am a creature of glory. I'm the worst of sinners. But through Jesus Christ, I am holy and righteous and blameless. I am the worst of sinners. But through Jesus Christ, I am a child of God. Get so excited about that, just like Paul did. 
You see, he tells this part of his story, and he gets to verse 15, and he says, I'm the worst of them. And then verses 16 to 17, really, they they read like an exclamation. They read like a praise the Lord at the end of a statement. Paul says, he just can't help himself. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. He's looking, Jesus was patient with me. He'll be patient with you. And then he just overflows in this amen right here. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He gets so excited about who he is in Jesus. He gets so excited about the grace and mercy of Christ. He gets so excited about what God has done for him in Jesus. His pen overflows in praise. We begin with the confession, I am the worst. And we end in the glorious doxology that Paul has written here. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, I pray that our love for you, our our acceptance by you, the truth of the gospel, the truths of the doctrine that we hold to, would so overwhelm us that though we begin with the confession, I am the worst, we end in rapturous praise. God, I pray that our excitement for you, our hearts overflowing and overwhelming with you would end in this doxology, that we would overflow in praise to you that our lips would always be praising and worshiping the God who took me from the worst to holy, from the worst to righteous, from the worst to child of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 